Welcome to Raised by Whoops. Uh, this is not Glenn Vanderclute, nor is it Andrew Couch. This is Jim O'Connor, and I'm sitting in today in order to interview Andrew Couch, focusing on his new book, The Moron at the End of This Book. And um, Andrew, I've got plenty of questions to ask you. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Uh, it was hard to put down. I looked forward to every chapter, and it is so engaging and compelling. And later on, I'll tell you how it resonated with me. But let me uh, begin by asking you, what was your motivation in writing this book? Well, good question. Thanks. And thank you for for being so supportive. At the risk of alienating other people who have also been very supportive, you the level of support you've shown for this project. Uh, and you and I have only known each other for like six months, maybe yeah. a little more, uh, has been outstanding. I mean, you've been very, very encouraging and very like, um, I don't know, willing to share your experience with other people. You've literally shared the book and bought it for other people. So, yeah. and you're doing this, my this pleasure. Was your, this was your idea. This yeah. is such a, such a tremendous, uh, I don't know. It's great. So thanks. Um, the motivation for the book, I've kind of had this idea of writing. I, I just love writing stories and I've had the title of the book sitting in my brain for, I don't know, many years. Um, you know, it's, it just feels presumptuous and weird to write a book about yourself, but the, I thought the way in was to make fun of myself, which I kind of do naturally anyway. But, uh, I, my wife and I'd been on this really long, uh, journey, like a kind of a two year journey and at the end of it um i ended up having to ship my vehicle it, we got stuck in costa rica mm. and had to leave our van there anyway i had to ship it to florida and i flew from here to florida picked it up and drove it back home and on the way home i saw my mom who i had not seen in a while and she's like look i've got this box of photos of yours that it's in my house and i can you please get it out of my house? No and this was in Mississippi? She lives in Memphis. Memphis, okay. Yeah, and so I, I, I grabbed these photos, this box from her, and brought it back home. And, uh, you know, it was kind of almost in the middle of the pandemic. It was not a great time to be traveling across the country. But uh, anyway, I get back, and I, I had this, um, I'd hired a coach, a writing coach, to help me. It's a woman named Susanna Rigg, who... Um, had been a travel writer and was, you know, world traveling person. But at that time there was no world travel. And she, uh, she started doing mentoring and, and these sort of coaching type of things. And I was like, man, that's great. I'll, I'll hire her. It'll help maybe give her some work and it'll help me get off my ass and actually start writing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I told her about that box of photos, she was like, Oh man, that's the best prompt I could possibly give you. I want you every day. And I, I picked a schedule. I was going to, right in the mornings from the, as soon as I got up until I had to go to work, you know, until I had to get ready. And uh, she's like, okay, well, like I'll commit to at least 700 words or more a day and just randomly pick one of these photos out of this box, pick a sense in your body, whether it's, you know, sight, smell, touch, taste, whatever you can think of in relation to that picture and write with that sense in your body. And I did that pretty faithfully. I mean, every single day, but sticking to that format, um, for about a few weeks, three weeks, maybe. And I, she's like, you know, you don't have to write a story about each one. You can just describe what's going on. I was like, yeah, I don't think there's much of a writer in my body. 
But there's definitely a storyteller there that wants to engage with these ideas and these photos in a in some other way. She's like, we'll just do that. And so that's what I did. Every morning I got up and just would write, you know, I, I kind of laid out an outline of the things I wanted to talk about. I kept notes as I'd wander around, you know. Okay, that's, yeah, so that's where um, it came from. You kind of took took me into my next question, which was to describe your writing process. But mm -hmm. I want to go back to this motivation. Yeah. And a little bit of a spoiler alert mm -hmm. in the last, I don't know, last chapter or the second to the last chapter, you talk about a little bit why you wrote this book. Mm -hmm. And that may have been an afterthought for you. But, you know, you said something, you wanted it to be a reflection for people. Yeah, I did. And thanks for, for reminding me of what it said. No, the, uh, I guess I wasn't answering your question very well. The, I guess motivation wise, there's a few things. Yeah. For one, I definitely, I like the idea of, you know, everybody is everyone else. We're all kind of, you know, we feel like there's some individualistic hero inside each person that is singular and unique in the world. And it's a special thing. And, uh, we're kind of just all the same thing. We're the same creature. We just had different parents grew up in a different place in the world had different opportunities, but all things being equal, we're kind of the same, you know, pleasure robot monkey flesh thing. Well, you, you made the point that you think we're reflections of one another. I think so. And so like part that journey that I referenced my wife and I, you know, going on that trip, one of the things I was really looking for, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of obviously self-critical and I'm, I'm, but it's, you know, looking for a blind spot in your personality and the way you behave is real hard to see but if you look at other people and watch how they behave you can maybe catch something that you're doing weird you know that like okay i see that behavior in that guy do i do that and that's like kind of a blind spot checker and so we can kind of see ourselves in others and i think that's like that's empathy that's you know our, our imagination that's how we play and fight and learn and you know meet new people is to see something in them that we recognize and they can see something in us that they recognize. And that's how I think we're able to get along and then find interest in things that are dissimilar and not, you know, not something you would expect and something that surprises you. So I hoped, I hoped to do that with the book before, before I wrote it, you know, anything I was going to present to people, I figured, okay, look, if, I, if I'm going to show something to people, there's got to be something other than just me trying to make them laugh. You know? Uh, which is definitely a motivation. I like making people laugh if I can. Well, you do make people laugh in the book, but it's a lot more than that. Yeah. You really, uh, you know, I, it resonated with me on so many levels. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, you, but you've written before because just before we started this interview, you told me that the one story we were discussing that you mm -hmm. had uh, written that before so do you, yeah. do you have some writing experience from before uh i mean i've kind of always done it um sometimes more than others while we were on that journey I, I spent a lot of time writing i've written most of a fiction novel like a, i started it almost as a uh what do you call it a graphic novel uh, and then i just started writing out the story and i really enjoyed that but i just i don't know i've dragged with self-doubt and it's it's a lot writing a piece of fiction is, is is a lot and you know as a kid i always wrote stories and as a teenager i would write um but yeah i don't have any other real experience other than on our journey i published a i hate the word blog it just sounds like another word for shit but <laughs> yeah it's but uh it's almost like a verb you know like i blogged it but anyway um 
yeah, I, I, I've got some writing experience with that. And I, I, I tried my hand at like writing, you know, some newsletters. I wrote a, like a little editorial thing that I sent into a, a paper. Um, do you, do you keep a journal ever? I have in the past. I've keeping, I've kept a journal. Um, now my, my journal is just whatever I'm writing, you know, th that I, I have either ambition to publish in some way, or, you know, I'm just trying to remember a thing. So are there any particular authors that you were drawn to, uh, who might've inspired you and said, oh, yeah. I'd love to write like that guy. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, JP Dunleavy, uh, is one of my absolute favorites. He was a fiction writer. He wrote a lot of different stuff, kind of a, um, American expat post-World War II ended up in Ireland. Um, and just was fucking hilarious, man. The guy just wrote these body crazy stories that are, I mean, lyrical and that, that just, they take you on a journey and, uh, it's great storytelling. And I really loved him. Uh, obviously like Douglas Adams. I don't know if you can tell, do you know who Douglas Adams is the hitchhiker's no, guide mm -hmm. to the, he's a British author. Uh, I quite liked him. He was a funny, you know, humorist kind of guy. And are you an avid reader? I like to read. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I don't read as much now as I used to, uh, because I've, I've been tricked by the algorithm and I stare at computers and phones and uh -huh. do a bunch of other dumb shit with my time. But yeah, I do really like to read. It's were you, as a kid, uh, were you a reader? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. All the time. I read a lot. My, my, my family is a bunch of readers. My dad. Um, uh, and another thing I didn't <laughs> mention in the book, but I like, I like reading on the toilet and this is a toilet book. Yeah. Like the chapters and everything, it's just the right amount of time. Almost. Some, Some of them more would be a little lengthy. It would yeah. be like a feet where you asleep. have a second movement or something. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, you can, you can come back to it. Yeah. You know, you shit once or twice a day, you read a couple of chapters, <laughs> you know, so yeah, it's a toilet book. Oh. And, um, you know, you, before the uh, interview today, uh, we were talking about your college career, your illustrious college career. <laughs> and you said that you only spent a year or two at the University of Memphis. Yeah. Uh, but what one of the things that really impressed me about your book is your vocabulary. Hmm. And uh, I assume that some of your vocabulary development was from reading at a young age, hmm. reading other people. But is there anything else that you attribute your, uh, I mean, it's just incredible, your vocabulary. Well, it's just so, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, saying just that. Just so well-spoken and well-written. Uh, you know, I just, I think maybe just reading British authors, you know, who have like such a comparatively formal speech pattern and use such like beautiful language to describe things. And like when, uh, when you read a translation of another book, you know, from another language, like I've read a couple, I've read Don Quixote twice mm, and mm -hmm. two different translations. And there, you know, there were expressions that were just different in the book. Um, and I like the way that people who are from another country or another language, when they express themselves in English, the words that they reach for are often really cool in the way they put it together. I don't know. I just, I've, I've I guess I've paid attention to that, but I don't know if I have a, if I have a, uh, expanded vocabulary, I guess it's probably from reading, reading as much as I did. And, you know, as a, 
as a kid, I, I did have a, it's funny, I talked about in the book, this uh, basketball coach that- uh, Oh yes, <laughs> which brought back some real strong memories for me <laughs> when you backtalked to him. I very much so backtalked him. Uh, I'm not proud of that moment. I hope I got that across in the book, but um, he was a he was a good teacher and he demanded a lot of us. He got us journaling every day. And uh, I had a strange high school experience because my my job, I've always been a working person from like yeah. a very early age. And I would come back from these crazy weekends you know, where I was traveling to another state or working at some crazy party, you know, as a professional. And uh, I'd write about that. And I, my favorite thing to do is pass it to the guy behind me in class, this guy, Chris Sobzak. I would hand him and he'd be like, you're out of your <laughs> mind, man. What are you doing? But he, the, that teacher was very, um, he wanted specificity. Was very keen on you just describing the shit out of a thing, and you can always whittle it from there. But describe, and to be curious about the words you use because they're you know they're important, and to to dig into the idea of vocabulary. So I, I could I should definitely credit him with. Well, I think you work. leave the re reader with a positive view of him so. uh, as an English teacher, yeah. not so much as a basketball coach, though. He had much more success with other teams. He and I just were not meant to. I mean, yeah. I think I've also gotten across in the book, I have issues with my father and male authority figures and I, I hadn't quite worked that out very yeah, well. And I'm going to get life. to that, the whole uh, relationship with okay. your father, because that takes up quite a bit of the book and a lot of emotional space Yeah, uh, for that. Now, the name of this book is The Moron at the End of the Book. Yeah, And uh, the book is filled with self-deprecating uh, statements about yourself. Mm -hmm. What's your definition of a moron? <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I, that was in the very, very beginning. It's, it's definitely something if you were to say, you're a fucking moron, I would not feel great about that. You know, it's like, right. You don't you like don't, being called those names. No one, no one likes it. Yeah. But it's, uh, remember, did you ever listen to Lenny Bruce? Sure. Mm -hmm. He would like talk about the power of words. Like you, you know, a lot of people say, or some people say that if you give if you say a thing, you're giving it power. I tend to think uh, just the opposite. Like if you normalize a thing, you take the power away from it. It's not hurtful. And the idea of a, a moron, uh, like I just wanted to, to whittle down the, the sting of moron a little, you know, just for whatever I can. Because like everybody is one for sure. We're all at, at, at some point and in some way a moron. We don't know, you know, when you're not being willfully ignorant. You just don't know. You no, know. but there's a difference between behaving in a moronic way yes. and being a moron, <laughs> yeah. right? I can grant that. Because yeah, if you're sure. a moron, that's almost kind of constant. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it used to be a medical term. It was an actual term of, yeah. of not a term of art, like a term of like, oh, this person is he's clearly a moron. Right. I, I can remember uh, taking classes in special education mm -hmm. and it was actually a designation, I believe, for yeah. a particular level of person right. with this I particular IQ, like yeah. between zero and 40. Right. So you really don't think of yourself as a moron, do you? I mean, not in a general everyday sense. Like I said, if you were to refer to me as a moron, other than jokingly, yeah, I wouldn't like it as a general thing you know but like i guess the thing i'm trying to get across is that 
you know, moron would be a pretty, it's a rough one, right? To call someone yeah. a moron. It's like, man, yeah. this fucking moron. Does Which this I one. do all the time while I'm driving. While you're driving, exactly. So like, for one, I just liked the title because I thought it was funny and it played on the the monster at the end of this book, which is a Sesame Street thing, which I always found brilliant. But the uh, the sting of a thing, like I, I like, I like a thing that is, it's not quite ironic, but it's like a, the joke of it is it's so extreme. It's clearly not the case. I don't think I'm actually all day long a moron that I'm just this hapless fuck up, but I'm close. Like I'm close enough where it's like still funny, but not totally, you know, there's some truth in it, but it's not the total, the totality of the experience. I call myself a moron all the time over little stuff. Totally little things. Like uh, just today, you know, I get out to the car. I think I have everything. And it's like, fuck, I forgot this. You fucking moron. Yeah. So, and uh, yeah. other people who know me well, when I say this, they're like, oh, you're way too hard on yourself. And like that is something that came across in the book that mm -hmm. you seem way too hard on yourself. But I want to talk a little bit more before I jump into the sure. actual content of this about the title again. It says short stories from a life well lived, but it's not well lived, is it? No. It's short stories from a life, comma, well lived. Lived. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like you're considering, because you know, a lot of people like to say it was a life well lived, you know, yeah. like this heroic, yeah, overcame the odds. Like I have underperformed, if anything, in my life. I, I should, I've had so many advantages. I've had so much just laid out at my feet, given to me, you know, by just biology, geography, luck. Didn't deserve it. There's no, I don't even know if deserve is a real thing, but uh, it's. I've had every opportunity. And I've kind of been, you know, I didn't finish college. I'm not very wealthy. I'm not, you know, super successful in some, in these, a lot of these normally accountable ways that people measure success. I personally feel very successful. I feel rich in that, like, I, I don't have, I don't worry about money all the time. You know, I'm able to buy the groceries I need. I can travel. I can afford a dog. You know, I'm, I'm okay. But not only do you afford a dog, Tell us about the diet that you have him on. <laughs> yes. I make dog food twice a month. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the, what are oh, the it's ingredients? Chock full of great shit. It's stuff that you and I would eat. Yeah. Up until the point where I put like bone meal and weird dog vitamins in it. But it's, it's basically flavorless Chinese food, uh, you know, chicken and, uh, rice and liver and I put any blueberries. vegetables. Oh yeah. Broccoli, carrots, any blueberries or uh, anything like yeah, that. I get blueberries in yeah. there. Sometimes if like, if I've got, like avocados that are going, you know, I'll put the avocados in there. By yeah. the way, uh, let me explain where we're at. We're not in Andrew's van. Nope. We're actually at uh, Eric Jacobson's home, Eric and his wife, Lala, mm -hmm. which is deep in the woods here in Larkspur, uh, California. And we were referring to Pele, his dog, who's laying right here on the couch as we're uh, recording this. So you don't really think you're a moron. You do moronic things at times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like the difference between being an asshole and acting like an asshole. I act like a moron enough to, to justify the joke and to make it a little true, you know? So one of the things that pops up in numerous chapters that I found interesting is that you're 
frequently describing people's breath. Yeah. What's with that? I mean, you're describing somebody's breath as alcohol or... Halitosis. Or <laughs> yeah, uh, in a, usually in a very negative way. Yeah, well, there's, there's certain things. For one, like, I really like... There's certain words I really like. Teeth, pants, breath. I don't know. There's shit like that that I like. <laughs> but uh, there's stuff that I notice. I, I really do pay a lot of attention to people's teeth, their hands, yeah. eyes. There's certain things that just I tend to like look at on people. Right. And breath is one of those things that you almost never encounter breath that you're glad to encounter. You know, it's like very, very few people in your life are like, oh, nice he breath. has nice breath. Yeah. Like no. how often? You know, you're, I, I knew a guy that I worked with at the Peabody whose breath was so fucked up like it's like even if he had his mouth closed he could smell it through his nose i mean it was just like he was a short guy and i'm kind of tall and we worked closely together i could just smell this dude's breath all the time and uh you know it's one of those things you can't maybe you brush your teeth maybe you don't i don't know what you know there's all kinds of factors that contribute to people's breath and i've man i've smelled the breath of like people who are dying not good man it's like there's a certain thing that happens. It's scary. You know, like uh, I've smelled it a couple of times. I didn't know what it was the first time I smelled it. I just knew it was like not great. You know, uh, I feel like there's probably a medical uh, that isn't that a, a, a means of diagnosis in the pre modern medical era was to smell the breath of the patient and see what was going on in their gut. And, well, you know, uh, People who have cancer, certain type of cancers, they definitely have a particular odor on their breath. I know that much. Interesting. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I probably have some sort of weird obsession that I've not um, analyzed fully. But it's funny that you noticed that it's in there more than, more than a few times. And I also want to talk about fighting. Mm. You frequently refer to the fact that you're not a fighter. Yeah, But there's many times in the book where you're balling up your fist, <laughs> ready to fight, or you express the fact that you want to kick the shit out of this person. Yeah. And uh, I think in the book you said you've only been in one fight and you lost it. I definitely. That's not described in the book. No. Uh, you want to expound <laughs> on that? I can. Yeah, I can tell you about fighting. I definitely, when it comes to fight or flight, I definitely have the fight response but i've i've never really had to do it i've never had to i mean that we got tiffany and i got charged by a bull once and i stood there and screamed at it like an idiot like that's the perfect time to get the fuck out of there and i didn't i just stood there so i definitely uh you know what was that old saying like your mouth is writing checks your ass can't catch cash you know i, I tend to like overestimate my physical strength i do not know how to fight you know but I'm not out looking for problems. I don't provoke shit. I, I would rather, you know, disarm a thing and make people laugh and make it go away, you know. But if when threatened, you know, or in the, in the face of like some sort of altercation, I don't want to back down. I don't know why. I have no means of imparting physical justice on anyone ever. But uh, yeah, I think that's a... And I, I try to recognize that because I'm I am I want to be like the sweet guy, the the one that people, you know, a lover, not a fighter, you know. But but uh, you chase this guy who had stolen yeah. all this money. <laughs> you had a chance to kick the shit out of him. Yeah, I'd but there. right there, uh, you had empathy for the guy. Of, yeah, yeah. 
and there was money all over the place. Mm -hmm. But you also knew that there were some badass friends of yours coming down the alley who would kick the shit out of him. Yeah. But you decided you didn't want to be that person. No. Now, you still haven't told me about the one fight you were in. I can tell you about that one. I can tell you about chasing people. And I learned, I think I mentioned in there early on that I, I'm I'm more of a gazelle than a lion. Like, I like to, yeah. to run, you know. Uh, I got, I was in third grade, third, fourth grade. I was a basketball player. loved playing basketball. Maybe I was a little older. And I was very excited for the season. It was just about to get going. Uh, we had games coming up and I was horsing around the football field after school and I bent over to pick up a football and this kid kicked me in the stomach really, really hard. And I, uh, I just saw red, man. I got so angry and I started chasing this kid. I had in the moment, I had no idea what I would do if I caught him. I just, I was just angry, you know, like, and in, he went left. I slipped on slick grass, broke my arm. Ah, and I, it was so dumb because I, I knew if I even if I caught him, I wasn't going to punch him, you know, uh, anyway. So I knew I knew that about myself. And in the, I'll tell you about the one fight that I got in. It was equally stupid, not far from where that uh, event described in the book where I chased the guy down who stole the money out of the bar. Uh, I was we were drunk I was with some friends and this guy had been arguing with me earlier in the night and I was like, you know, we, we'd gone from one bar to another. I saw him at that bar. I was like, hey, man, can I just can I buy you a drink? Let me let me get you a beer. And he yelled. He was like, fuck you. This, this, this. I'm like, all right, well, never mind. <laughs> I rescind my offer for a drink. I'll, I'm going away. I'm sitting down talking to another friend. And this guy comes up to me, gets in my face. And he's like, you need to figure out what your problem is with me right now. And true to form, I was like, well, right now, my problem is your breath. It's in my face. And I want it out of my face. Get out. Yeah away from me. I'm just, I'm, I'm not talking to you. I'm not fucking with you. Leave me alone. And, uh, he, he got even closer and said something. And I, I don't know. I just snapped and I wrapped him up really quickly. I, I was like grappling. I just grabbed him and put him to the ground. And mind you, this is a big, he's my height, but bigger, like, a you know, actually had muscles, not just, you know, I call myself like a combination of, uh, olive oil and Bluto. Instead of no, all the no, no, <laughs> not even close, stringy dude. Yeah. Anyway, so this I get this guy on the ground, and I'm like, okay, this stops, right? You're gonna cut this shit out. No more of this. And I could have, I mean, I could have really been hurting him, hitting him, pulling on him. I didn't do anything. I just had him on the ground. And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. What I didn't realize is that my friend saw this happening, and a guy kicked him right in the balls mm. while he's on the ground. Mm. I had no clue. So I lit this, you know, I lit this guy up. We get up. We're in the crowded bar. People are like, are you okay? I've got my arms at my side. I'm thinking it's all over. Boom. This guy hits me right in the face. And I, it was like being in a dream. I could not put any anger behind my punches. I'm throwing punches at this guy, but I just couldn't. I didn't really want to hurt him. I just, I don't know. We spilled out in the street. We're yelling at each other. I'm saying all this stuff, but I don't feel it. You know what I mean? Like a, Anyway, it just I had this long hair. It looked like such an idiot. People have described it. It looked like cavemen fighting. It spilled out <laughs> into the street at like 2.30 in the morning. The Neanderthals are at it again. Totally. I mean, just the dumbest contest of all time. We're knocking each other around. He eventually at one point had my hair like in his hand. We're on the ground. He's like, somebody get this guy. It was just so dumb. Yeah, I Black and blue, big bruises on my face. And Yeah, I've, I've, I've always felt bad. And, I, and later I heard 
of that guy felt like he got jumped mm. because you know i had him on the ground and he got kicked so his perception of the thing is like i'm this horrible antagonist attacking him you know it's like damn it that's the last thing in the world i wanted yeah fight this guy at all i didn't want anything i offered to buy him a beer five minutes before that you, you know? fight with your siblings at all not really my brother is 11 years older than me uh, uh, my sister i was scared of because she's nuts uh, she had these really long powerful legs and she'd kick i'd like wrestle with my little sisters you know but never i mean never hurt you know on purpose or anything we weren't let really let me fighters. go back to your love of basketball yeah uh, you don't really don't talk about uh the only story in there about basketball is when you yell at your coach uh -huh. and then quit the team right yeah. there I got kicked the, off the team. in the gym yeah yeah <laughs> and oh also uh where you were a stand-in uh but that yeah. really doesn't count as basketball uh, no. other than uh, you were shooting around and the guy <laughs> yeah. uh decided to block your yeah. shot which was quite funny hilarious but uh so did you play basketball in high yeah. school no i loved all it through? Yeah, I played. Yeah. I played basketball as a kid, and all the way through through that game. And I played. You know, I would go play with friends after until I was in my twenties. Yeah, uh, I loved basketball myself. That was yeah. my sport, mm -hmm. and I played actually until I was fifty five. So, nice. um, who was your uh, idol? A basketball idol. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a goofy white dude. So Kevin McHale. From uh, the Boston Celtics. Okay, I missed it. I wrote down who I thought you were going to say. Who'd you Who'd you have? Pete Maravich. I like Pistol Pete, man. He was He was hip. I watched the Pistol Pete documentary. Uh, I was a shooting forward. Uh -huh. I, you know, I was a three point shooting forward. Um, and I I liked basketball, but oddly, and I'll mention it all in the book. Soccer was my mm. was the sport I ended up being much better at, and oh. I started way later with soccer. Um, I would have never thought that uh, like. People play soccer in, in the Memphis. South. So. Yeah. I played against two guys that were, uh, they ended up playing in the Olympics and pro. They're probably retired now, but they were pro soccer players. Um, our school was terrible. We were not good. Uh, <laughs> and we were in this district where we played all these much bigger schools. And um, so, you know, scouts would come and watch these great players on these bigger teams. And, you know, they just happen to see me and I'm, I'm on this not very good team and I'm a pin cushion. You know, I, I remember my junior year, there was one game where we lost like 10 to nothing, but I had like 55 saves. You know, so they're, they're watching this, you know, these great players and I'm like, okay, they're kicking the shit out of this team. But like, look at this kid, look at this goalkeeper. Just, I mean, you know, there were 65 shots on goal. You were a goalkeeper? Yeah. Oh, I loved man. it, man. It was like so... You could just dive and fly through the air and i was i was unusually fast for somebody my size i was really quick i don't know a lot about soccer never liked it yeah. because you weren't allowed to use your hands except for the goalkeeper except for the goalkeeper yeah which is what i liked about it because so I, maybe you know, i should have been a goalkeeper back then. you probably would have been great at it uh <laughs> well, you I have mean, long arms like me long arms yeah, long, long legs. legs and i wasn't afraid to knock into people and was very physical and i mean I was not afraid of any of the guys, the soccer players, they're all like kind of scrawny, smaller guys and I knock them over. <laughs> so one yeah. of my uh, favorite chapters, and there were a lot of them in there, were when you went to New York City. Okay. <laughs> and wow, did you have some experiences there? I did. But you frequently re are talking, not only in the chapter about New York City or writing about it, not talking about it, but uh, about your accent your mm -hmm. uh, southern tennessean yeah. accent uh, 
it's good. But you don't have that now. You know, I, I don't know if it's because I don't drink or what, or just <laughs> moving around. It definitely comes out at times. Like at, at times you'll hear things. But back then, and I've, I've, I've seen, a, uh, I was in a documentary film, two different ones, and uh, in my 20s. And it, I just sound different. I just had a much more pronounced Southern accent. And, and I don't can do you anything. replicate that now? Uh, oh, yeah, man. Of course. You know, I, I, I can do like a, um, like a parody of it, but I, I don't know what I, I, you know, if I hear it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. But I, I don't See, know what I sound like. It's not like this. No. Not like that North Carolina. No. It's not that it's not, Texas drawl, anything no. like that. No. I, I probably said, I would like, say, instead of saying probably, I'd say probably. Probably. You know, there was like little things, but I just, I had more of an accent. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm probably just such like a people pleaser. I think my... <laughs> When I lived in New Orleans, my accent was slightly more New Orleans. When I lived in mm. New York, I tried, you know, unconsciously. But. It's very interesting because uh, they've done studies on this, and uh, it's a sign of intelligence to be able to kind of adapt to the language that someone else is speaking. Interesting. And you're almost echoing it back to them. That was Pele, by the way, if you heard that. <laughs> hey, buddy. Um, and... Uh, it's a way to really communicate with people. When yeah. people hear you speaking in the same cadence, mm -hmm. rhythm, accent that they are, it, it connects you. And so maybe that what was maybe. going on. Yeah, like I thought that. you were going to say it's like a trait of morons that they can't keep their <laughs> accent together. They got. <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I I don't really have it the same anymore. But it used to be a, a much more pronounced. So you waited toward the end of the book for this little chapter on making prank phone calls, which definitely resonated with me. That's something that I did all yeah. the time, yeah. and I'm ashamed of it. Yes, totally. Uh, my seventh grade language art teacher, who was married to my ninth grade French teacher, uh, was a woman who was not well-liked, <laughs> and uh, she had a little twitch in her eye, and we would sit there in the classroom and at like nine o'clock, all the seventh grade boys would start twitching their eye like hers. Oh my God. But uh, there was one time where we ordered for her, I think, uh, two tons of coal, uh, four or five plumbers, a couple funeral homes, some pizzas. Oh my God. And a friend of mine who lived across the street from her said it was just this parade of people who showed oh up that night. Oh my God, that's incredible. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. But uh, one you definitely should be ashamed of, but it's still, yeah, we're definitely ashamed still of that. Funny. But you know, and then the little things like uh, you know, calling up the bowling alley, do you have 10 pound balls? Right. Yeah. Well, how do you walk? <laughs> you know, things like that. So, so just give us one yeah. one little story about your prank phone calls. Oh, and and what what age were you back then? Uh this was probably 10 to before my my balls dropped before my voice got deep uh prepubescent you know that just like yeah. 10 to 12 whatever yeah um yeah i mean you know your friends would come over and you'd fuck with people yeah <laughs> i you know, get on the phone and i just i loved like now i think i told you about i just played dumb i just am the dumbest oh, yeah. person in the world yeah i was actually hoping someone would call me today and i'm <laughs> so just gonna hand the phone to you <laughs> let you take over i love that shit i, I just i love it uh it's the modern prank call 
because you get to just receive the call of someone either trying to scam you or sell you something and you get to be your old self you know but yeah we i mean there were some good ones i think i described this one in the book where like i'd call i'd call people and pretend like i was a radio dj which anyone would ever believe this was just (laughs) outrageous you know and like you know people would get really excited about winning money or winning tickets even if they, they didn't care even if they didn't ever listen to that station it wouldn't matter they just got like a this high-pitched kid telling you oh you're in, you know, in, in 10 seconds or less name all you know and just everything was wrong like how many the number of planets everything was just none of it made any sense but people would get excited and they would try but yeah it was uh it was a lot of fun Another very interesting uh, chapter in the book, maybe it was a couple chapters, was when you worked at the hotel. Uh, and, everybody, um, yeah. and, you know, there's a story about the uh, geese, I believe. The ducks. The, the ducks. Pe- the yes, Peabody the, ducks. The yeah. ducks who were. And is that hotel still open? What's the oh, name yeah. of it? It's the Peabody. So the Peabody's still the Peabody. there. Still there. Still a fountain in there? Oh, yeah. It's this beautiful travertine marble, gorgeous thing. And they, a few times a week, at least they used to, they would redo, I mean, fresh flowers, like beautiful, massive flower arrangement with like fragrant But they don't lilies. put ducks in there anymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, they do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a big part of the draw is this, the March of the Peabody Ducks. And uh, was it there that you were parking cars? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you make, I think you alluded to it, but you never got to put any detail to it. You said you met jimmy page and robert plant yeah can you tell me about that oh hell yeah that was a that was really cool it was like a sunday afternoon i'm I'm sure they had a reservation but it wasn't under you know jimmy page robert plant um and they didn't have a show locally Mm. um they were on that plant and page tour and i think they'd played in birmingham and they were going i don't know this was after led zeppelin broke up yeah Yeah. well many this is like the 90s you know no okay um yeah, late late nineties. Anyway, so they, uh, you know, I'm, I'm parking, and of course, it's like the doorman on Sundays was not the regular guy. That's who would normally greet you if you, you know, you got there. The valet was the last. You would hand your key to them, maybe, but the doorman was always the guy. But he wasn't there. And this, um, you know, and Led Zeppelin recorded uh, Led Zeppelin three in Memphis, so they had friends there. It was like a really cool guitar shop across the street that they knew. They knew the guys. So they were coming to Memphis just to hang out. They weren't playing a show. They didn't have anything going on. So anyway, the, this limo pulls up, or not even a limo. Jesus, it was like a um, a town car. Like, and I think Robert Plant was driving. Uh, one of the two of them was driving. Huh. And I open up the door. I'm like, "Welcome to the Peabody, Mr. Plant." I recognized him immediately. Yeah, it was Robert Plant driving. Jimmy Page in the passenger seat, and the back seat was their manager, just like their their road manager. And he's like, "Oh, thanks, man." You know, like. I get them all out of the car and like getting bags and stuff, putting it in the, the luggage cart and talk, you know, just like, how was your trip? You know, like, oh, yeah, just in Birmingham. It's a beautiful drive. And that was a drive that I made all the time. I used to, you know, work in Birmingham and go to Florida. That was the way through. And uh, yeah, they were just like super sweet. They ended up like getting behind the bar and making drinks and like had this wild, you know, experience. But like, so they, they go inside and I get in their car and the thing just smells like weed. There's lemon cookies. <laughs> And like all this, you know, like it just looked like three dudes on a road trip, you know, just like food and stuff. So I get in the car and I close the door and I drive away and like eat one of the cookies 
you know, I just, I'm like trying to absorb as I much eat Robert Led Plant. Zeppelin's cookies. I eat one of Jimmy Page's lemon cookies. You, know? you a Led Zeppelin fan? I love Led Zeppelin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm about two thirds of the way through their 600 page autobiography oh, yeah. by Bob Spitz. Crazy. And by the way, Jimmy Page, I don't think he drives. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, He's uh, not the one with the crazy car collection. That was Bonham, huh? That was the, uh, yeah. Bonham. Uh, do you remember what the manager looked like? It was a short guy. He looked like he might have been Scottish or Irish, but I don't know. Okay. Yeah, don't their know. manager for Led Zeppelin was an enormous guy named Peter Grant. Oh no, it wasn't Peter Grant. Yeah. No, this was like a you know a, for that that tour, that Page and Plant tour. I don't know. It, yeah. yeah, it does mention in there about a Memphis uh, being in Memphis. Interesting, but you know, uh, not the time where you met. No, him. no, I yeah, I, I'm always a little late to the party, you know. So let me turn to something more serious that okay. is discussed throughout your book, uh, and that's your dad. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, everything from when you were a little kid and how you never really felt comfortable around him all the way to being with him when he died. Yeah. And then later on uh, discussing, you know, kind of how you wish he would be able to connect with you now or wherever he's at. Yeah. Uh, do you think if your dad was still alive today with how you have developed as a human being that you two would be friends? I mean, there are so many things about your description of your dad that connected with how my relationship with my dad was you know yeah. i think i told you the first time i remember hugging him was that after my wedding and there was this like stiff he couldn't really yeah. and you talk about kissing your dad or trying to kiss him when you were like 11 years old and he said aren't you too old for that i woke So you know that feeling, you know, of, of yeah. not feeling comfortable around a guy that you're, I think, maybe afraid of. I mean, I definitely felt afraid of him, you know, uh, and I, I felt like I couldn't express myself around him. You know, I, I could be just glib and any, you know, it didn't matter. I, like I said, I mentioned in there, one of my best friends was 72, <laughs> like many years older than my father. Yeah. But I just around him, I just could not ever articulate that thing so when i think about um it's funny because a lot of while i was writing i think about if a lot because if if is like one of the essential elements of story yeah you know just the idea of the future and the unborn people that don't exist and may or may not you know the the idea of oh if in the past i had done this instead of that 
one of my favorite jokes is, well, if grandma had balls, she'd be grandpa. You know? Yeah. But you know, the dog didn't stop to take a shit, he'd have caught the rabbit, right? Right. So that whole idea of if, if is just the story. There is no, there's only what actually happens. There's never, the you know, possibility is this game we play. So like, would, would my dad and I get along? I would be such a different person if he were still alive. Uh, I've thought a lot about this because, um, you know, what, it took me a long time to realize I was not as empathetic to my siblings as I should have been during that time because I was so focused on my own pain and loss and stuff. You know, they lost a very different guy than I did, even though it was the same man, their relationship to my dad, you know, they, they lost this brilliant, funny, super cool guy who loved them. Right. And that they, they knew loved them and they had this very different, and I don't mean to just characterize exactly what their relationships were with him, but they had a different relationship that meant something to them that my relationship with him did not. And I was always focused on that. And when I explained to my siblings, like, look, I'm just, I'm basically saying, sorry, <laughs> sorry that I wasn't there for you the way you guys were there for me. I always just talked about like the regret and pain and how awkward it was to be around my father. Did you feel your dad didn't love you? I, no, I felt like he loved me, but I don't feel, he definitely didn't like me. He didn't you know? like you as a person? It just, you know, I was like, a, you know, like a hat you'd rather not wear. You like hats, hats are great, but that one's not your favorite. You know, you'd rather not put that one on. I was mm. that, you know, like I, I was this, I was too much like my mom, not like my brother, you know, not like him. And my, my dad, you know, he, he had a tough life. I mean, he was one of thir 16 children born, you know, like, you know, the idea of getting affection from your parents and all that type of stuff. Like I, I'm very spoiled in the amount of affection and attention I got from my parents. So I don't really know what it was like for him to be able to, to look at this kid who had every fucking thing in the world, everything, you know, like who was depressed or sad or whatever thing I was going through. Like, I don't know what it would be like for him to know that he'd given me every possible opportunity and to see kind of a fuck up, you know, this weird little guy who wasn't like my, you know, achievable and achieving si siblings who were talented and smart and capable. I was definitely like the runt in, <laughs> in that way. So I can, I can empathize with his like, his disappointment in me wasn't like malicious or, or unjustified in a way, you know, but yeah, the, the guy, the guy that I became and the guy that may or may not have existed had my dad remained alive. You know, I, I think we've got enough in common on a base level where we would have been able maybe to discuss things. But like the experiences I've had since and the things that have molded me into whatever the fuck this is, I'm not sure they would have happened had he remained alive. So this is how uh, what you wrote about your dad resonates with me. And that is, you know, when I really reflect back on my dad's life, he grew up in abject poverty during the depression. Uh, his father died when he was one. His mother was blind. And so uh, he never got any affection. He yeah. didn't know what that was like. Right. And he said he never really got a good a new clothes or a good meal until he went into the Navy at age 16. So 16. now I can understand his behavior a lot better. Yeah. When I think about that and why he 
was not able to show the kind of affection that I might have wanted. Right. And yet, I went back to help take care of him during the last week of his life. Wow. And uh, got to air everything out. As we sat there in the middle of the night looking for some medical records that he was obsessing about. Right. Uh, two days before he died. Wow. Where he did tell me that, you know, I apologized to him, to him for all the fuck ups that I had in my life. Right. And he's like, don't worry about it. Wow. And, uh, you know, that he still loves me. And, um, and one of the things that I think you said in so many words that I said to him is, I'm right behind you, you know. Mm. You know, it's not going to be that long before I end up in yeah. whatever universe, yeah. whatever multiverse, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, that's I think you kind of express that too. Yeah. What so, was his reaction to that when you said that to him? Oh, you got plenty of time. Yeah. 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 Tell me about your that's mom, a, though. You don't really, I mean, you speak of your mom very fondly. Yeah. Uh, you don't go into a lot of detail about what her life was like. Oh, uh, yeah. She's still alive. She's still alive. Yeah, and, she's doing uh, great. You said you're more like her than you mm -hmm. are your dad. Yeah. Well, she's, you know, um, God, this dog, I think he's hungry. <laughs> That's three of us. Yeah. We'll go eat just like that. So mom is, um, you know, she's a creative. You know, she's a piano player. Mm -hmm. um, she grew up very Catholic uh, with four brothers. Or three brothers, sorry. Is she religious? Very religious. Uh -huh. uh, her mom was very religious. Her mom was a nurse. My mom knew from a very early age what she wanted to do for a living. Mm -hmm. She knew she wanted to be a nurse from the moment she realized a person had to get a job at some point. I mean, just has been a nurse and a caregiver and a nurturer the whole time. Um, it's funny, I just spent um, a few days with my uncle who is 84 years old and has a pretty, 85 pretty severe pancreatic cancer and uh, spent many hours recording his life story. And when he talked about my mom, it was funny. He was like, oh, she was spoiled, spoiled rotten, but, you know, hmm. but not, not rotten. She wasn't mean or cruel or callous no. or shitty, but you know, my, my grandmother finally had her little girl, you know, with three other, you know, rough little boys. Uh, she had a, a little girl and, um, you know, my mom definitely is loving, like extremely loving. And it, it, like whatever my grandmother did for her shows in my mom's capacity to care for care for others. And my mom had very close brushes with death. Like she was in a scary car accident. She had this crazy thyroid thing that almost killed her at a young age. So she had a, an empathy for the dying that was uncommon. And uh, in nursing school, like when she was doing her clinicals and they were putting her in rotation, and, you know, trying to get her some experience on the floor, they would often give her terminal patients. And she asked one of her, like, I guess, I don't know if they called it a preceptor, but one of the, the nurses ahead of her, and was like, why? I'm not complaining, but why Why do I always get these these types of patients? They're like, well, you're not afraid. You're not mm -hmm. saying dumb things to them. You're not acting weird around them. You're approaching them like human beings. And that's exactly what they are. And, that you're, you know, so she took it to heart and uh, got a, like she ended up getting her master's degree in thanatology, like the study and and the focus of death and how to help the dying and, and dedicated her career to hospice and palliative care and oncology and like this 
you know, providing dignity in death for, for people. So our, our nightly dinner, and we always had dinner together. We always, yeah. until we moved out. Yep. And our dinner conversation was very often focused on her work. Mm. And that work was, you know, telling you stories for maybe a week about this really cool guy. And then he died, you know, like, and then she died. And then this person died. And that, you know, it was always this like cycling of, of beloved people that the takeaway was she was able to dial into these people and become a friend and, and be extremely human to them and ex have them express their humanity to her on their way out the door. It was really kind of a, an amazing what thing. a gift. So, yeah. She's got a gift for it, man. And she's, she's a, a wonderful human being, a very generous and, and, um, uh, available grandma. She's like, just loves being a grandma. Uh -huh. like, takes my nieces and nephews all over the world. Has she read your book? Yeah, she read it. She laughed. You know, a lot of it made her uncomfortable, obviously. Um, you know, I tell a story in there about a botched, what was not a, actually a suicide attempt, but it was seen as a suicide attempt. And, um, you know, it implicated her in a, in a way that she remembers differently, you know? So there was stuff like that that was, I'm glad she got to engage with it. She's like, you know, this is the sort of stuff you don't normally know about your kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you what about your siblings? Have any of them read read the book or given uh, you any feedback on it? My sister bought a bunch of copies and has given it to friends. I think she is reading it or maybe has. Um, I got a congratulations from my brother. And uh, yeah, we're, I'm not terribly close with my siblings, um, mm. which is a failing on my part. I know, you know, it's not them. <laughs> but uh yeah i haven't really gotten any any specific i mean my sister is encouraging the one who bought all the, the books and has shared it with people she's been very encouraging of it you know she's an artist and is very uh she gets how weird it is to share creative work whatever it might be you know so one thing that surprised me about the book is that well into the book probably 80 percent before you even mentioned your wife yeah. You didn't even mention her by name until like 90% of the way in. Yeah. And I don't believe there are any stories involving her with the exception of the one on the bridge. Yeah. So we, we met on my 21st birthday. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of what goes on in that story kind of takes place before there's some that sort of happens after. Yeah. yeah. You know, but for the most part, the majority of the story happens before we really got together. And, you know, the madness of my life, a lot of it happened before I met, you know, just having her in my life is, you know. But there was a hiatus there. You met her and then you two broke up for a while. And then some of the stories are during that breakup period. Like yes. I think some... when you were in Antigua or somewhere uh... or not. Yeah, no, we were, yeah. So we, we broke up and got together a lot over a 10 year period of time. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, she's an incredibly patient woman. I don't know, like stories about her. You know, there's stuff that happened later in our lives that are kind of more interesting, but like, you know, it's being in love with someone and going through a tumultuous relationship and all that sort of stuff is, um, it didn't feel, the stories that I have written about that type of stuff aren't as compelling. You know, and in, in a in like a, I don't know. None of it made the book. I've written I've written about her, but none of it quite made the 
made the book, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. And uh, what's her reaction to the book? I mean, she's very supportive. Uh, she's very uh, encouraging and wants me to write more. She really thought I would finish and produce that uh, the fiction book that I was working on. She really likes that one. Uh, but yeah, she just, you know, she just wants me to do something. Did she <laughs> read it as you went along? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. she's, you know, when we, I'll read out loud to her. You know, she was the first person to see most of this stuff. Um, was she shocked by any of it? You know, she's no surprise. She knows me really well. Yeah. <laughs> we, there's very few, if any, secrets between us, you know. Uh, yeah, she's she's real encouraging. I mean, like, I was thinking about it. Uh, I, I'm writing a story right now about something that happened when I was on the Pacific Crest Trail, which I don't really, I think, mention in the book either, no. which was a big part of my life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, while I was out doing that, like I'm hiking in you know, the middle of nowhere trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life. She was in nursing school, like actually putting her life together. Yeah. Not this just flailing, you know, whatever the hell I'm up to. And like, she's just such a solid, um, together person in that way. You know, it's, uh, she really puts up with a lot of shit out of me. Uh, you know, this, this like nebulous, ambiguous lifestyle, you know, trying to always self doubt all this goofiness. She's like, no, let's just do this thing. She's, she's hardworking and diligent and has like a good career. I'm, you know, I don't, I'm hardworking. You I'll are hardworking. Very hardworking. Yeah. So another thing you talk about that again resonated a lot with me was really late in the book. Uh, may have been the last chapter of the one before that focused on depression. Yeah. And that's something that I've experienced throughout my life. Mm -hmm. um, I feel for me, like I kind of know what are some of the things that trigger it. Yeah. But the way you described it is it just kind of sneaks up on you. Uh, and just for the listener, you know, uh, Andrew talks about being in a depressed state and how it affects uh, his ability to function in general. And you also make reference to some people earlier in the book, uh, somebody who was actually lived here for a while, yeah, uh, who was undergoing a lot of depression and you were shocked that it changed his voice. Mm -hmm. And I can speak for myself and say, I know that depression has changed my voice at times. Yeah. So, uh, are you still experiencing depression at times? Uh, yeah. Uh, do you have family members who experience depression? Is there any more you want to say about it? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say too much about my other family members, but for sure it's a thing, you know, that, um, you know, I, I, it's such a strange thing, depression. It is. Especially when you're self-aware did you ever read that book my stroke of insight so, um, uh, maybe a neuroscientist or a neurosurgeon who talked about having a stroke uh-huh like yes that was her field of study and then she actually had one yes i do and she was able to really like give a lot of insight into right. what happens i do remember that so i feel i mean i'm obviously no expert in fucking anything but uh, especially not clinical depression or what all that really means but i am very prone to self-scrutiny you know I'm, I'm 
I try, I, I aim for self-awareness. Um, and, and to be in that depressed state and with a, with a predilection to self-awareness is a weird place to be because you're observing yourself behaving in a way that you know is not great. You know, and you, you're aware of all your advantage, all the things that are working in your favor, yet you just, you got the blues, man. You cannot shake it. You can't rationalize yourself out of it, no matter how much you realize, like, look, I'm not in Yemen. I'm not starving. It doesn't matter. I, I, I went into a terrible depression once on one of the most beautiful lakes, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And I felt like I just wanted to get in the lake and not come back out, you know, just wanted to dissolve in it like a, you know, like a pill. <laughs> I know you don't like people giving you advice related to how to get over depression. Uh, one of the things I'll say that is not really advice, but maybe provide a little insight is I find that I get depressed before I have to make a big decision mm -hmm. or before I and making some kind of existential decision in my life. And uh, once I make the decision, it's lifted. Really? Interesting. Uh, I don't know if that might have been similar for you or not. No, I, you know, very often I, I go through existential dread. I'll, I'll, I'll just suddenly wake up thinking about <laughs> what Douglas Adams called life, the universe, and everything. You know, uh, where you're just suddenly overwhelmed with the idea of pointlessness and, you know, the, the weight of existing, um, which can be, it's a lot, you know, and you, I just ruminate and I feel, um, you know, just to, to look at it now when I feel fine is a good time to talk about it, you know, but uh, it'll just suddenly come up. I can kind of feel it coming a little bit and then, mm -hmm. then suddenly it's just, you're, you're snowed under with this like sense of pointlessness and purposelessness and when i have a big decision to make when there's things that are important in my life I f that need to get done and that there's like a clear direction it's one of the reasons i like taking uh, point a to point b journeys because it gives my sense of direction and purpose a very clear thing to aim at i'm gonna start here and i'm gonna go there and that's my job in this time period memphis to des moines Fucking Des Moines, you know, Florida to California. If I'm going to drive, like I used to, I just love having an actual destination yeah. to, to, to combat that otherwise fairly overwhelming sense of pointlessness when I literally have a point A and a point B and that's what I do. Um, I can distract myself with, with purpose. And most of the really happy people I've met in my life, the people I can are observably well and together they have a sense of purpose in their uh -huh. life. Yeah. Like I'm here to do X. I've never really felt that. And the more I examine that, the the easier it is for me to slip into some existentially depressed. Do you think writing this book uh, was compensation for any of that or trying to fill any kind of void? Or... Oh, everything is an effort to fill a void. Yeah. Every sandwich, every squeeze of my wife or my dog yeah every, I've, I've been trying to read um been reading victor frankel's uh man's search for meaning yeah and where he talks about like confusing pleasure or mm -hmm. work or stress for for purpose and meaning and i i struggle with that i struggle to try to find instead of filling voids 
you know, I, I don't want to be in that position where that's what I'm doing, you know. So was this a sense or, or uh, an effort to find some purpose? Well, I or direction. It, this was an effort to to write a book. You know, I mean, I just I wanted to do it. I've always wanted to do it, and uh, seeing that I now can and what it takes to do it, this was like, okay, yes, I can write a book, and uh, there are many other things that I'd like to write about. I mean, it's it is fun to write about myself. You know, like I'm with me all day long. You know, I've got a lot of stories, but so it, how has writing this book changed you? Uh, well, it, it's given me a little bit more confidence in my ability to tell stories. So I'm I'm thrilled with storytelling. I'm thrilled by it, thrilled with it. I want to hear them. I want to tell them. I grew up, you know, around good storytellers. Yeah. And uh, like I said, most of my friends have been older, a lot older. And those are, that's where you get all the stories from. And you watch how people do it and you, you know, so that it's given me a, if, if it's changed me at all, it's given me a sense that I, I know it's possible to do it and that people get something out of it. I mean, that, man, your response to it has been really kind and uh, unexpected. Like I just, I a friend of mine said, you know, I came into this with no expectations and you've exceeded every one. Uh, so any regrets related to writing this book? Anything you wish you wouldn't have written about or I would have written about or emphasized more or uh, expressed I mean, myself in a different way? Not necessarily, no. I, I don't know that I have any regrets. I mean, for sure, I wish I would have, like I've, there's some pretty crucial misspellings and some, you know, uh, there's some formatting errors and things that I've, I've now addressed. There's a new edition uh, coming. But um, as far as thematically, I mean, other things that didn't make the cut that maybe could have. Um, and so long as no one is hurt by anything I said, which so far no one has been. Uh, I don't know if any residents of Des Moines have read this book yet, but they might be, have some notes. But I don't, I don't feel regretful or like I've... Do you think your dad would have been hurt? Uh, Maybe, maybe. But I think I was fair. I tried to be. I don't know if I was, but I aimed toward a, an awareness of, you know, I think it would have, I don't know if it hurt. Yeah, I mean, he's a sensitive guy. I'm sure it probably would have hurt his feelings. But hopefully he would have been able to see... It's the sort of shit I wish I could have said mm -hmm. in person. And when you're when you're left without someone to say it to, you know, that's why I wrote that one letter, the letter yeah. to dad, like explaining. Like, yeah. And in the back, I was like, hey, I hope this doesn't I know this seems like a negative Yelp review of your parenting, but I am grateful. You know, I don't have anything in my life that I without you. You know, there's nothing. So. So is there another book? Um, coming along or uh, I'm, I'm formulating working. in your mind? Yeah, I'm working on a couple of things at the moment. I got to pick one um, and go for it. One I'm calling uh, Begin Anywhere Whenever, a field guide to compassionate nihilism. And it's uh, sort of a take on Be Here Now, uh, the Ram Dass uh -huh. classic about yeah. being present. Um, it's on my nightstand. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, lovely thing. But I, I'm kind of taking the piss of it, you know, just because it it is so. If if you suffer from existential dread and self doubt, and you feel like you're never going to hit that target of being here now, <laughs> it's like a little it's a rung lower for all the un, underachievers, you know. Um, 
and 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 people who suffer that like the existential dread of you know the weight of existence bearing down on them the, the, the idea of compassionate nihilism so you're not just a dick you know just you don't become this calcified cynical asshole um it's not necessarily advice it's just poetry and, and goofy anecdotal stuff uh so there's that and i'm working on a um a fiction that same fiction uh, book that i previously worked on uh and i'd so be we'll remiss in not telling the audience that uh, uh this is the actual site of the koi slaughter yeah we're there <laughs> we're, we're, there's a whole new batch there are 10 koi currently in that pond but they're looking really healthy and it looks like you've learned your lesson um, i almost did it again i almost <laughs> did it again just the other day i got really distracted the power went out while i was putting uh, water back in the pot because you have to do exchanges every once in right. a while. And you put in a little, but not a lot, and it started to overfill. It's like, oh Jesus Christ! It's like <laughs> I had the timer set, and I, I, when it went off, I got distracted by something else, and I, was, I meant to be turning off the water. I almost did it. Yeah, and almost this, killed the fish. And for those listening, uh, there's uh, in the book, uh, uh, Andrew is lamenting about accidentally killing off the koi in the koi pond yeah. here. That yeah. Uh, Eric Jacobson has and yes. that he's very protective of and loves and yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. I've, and now at this point I've, I've been around these fish so much for so many years. I feel protective of them. You know, I, 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 I love them. Like we've got names for them. You know, I go out and yeah. check on them. There are cameras right now pointing at that pond. Yeah. And yeah. I was here on the 4th of July and there right. was a bird who was, yeah. The, what, what kind of heron. bird was that? A, a heron? A big fucking heron that yeah. ate fit. Yeah, it'll it's eaten. We've lost a lot of fish to heron and uh, and raccoons. So, and but now there's like protect protection oh from the heron. So. Yeah, it is a uh, <laughs> the yeah. Okay, so you you're really uh, putting a lot of effort and energy into studying voice acting. Correct. Uh, you've been taking courses. Uh, you've got your booth here behind me now, or uh, and. Uh, you're recording this book as an audio book. Yes. So what's your dream for being a voice actor? Well, I'd like to be able to uh, to not work so physically hard because my job now is all, it's all muscles, you know, just moving things, yeah. picking things up, building. Um, just, just physically, I would like to have other. So what are your perfect you know, voice actor jobs? Uh, for me, I, I'd love to do narration. I would love to do audio books. I know it's the lowest paying thing on the, it's the hardest most tedious yes lowest paying but i enjoy it i like reading yeah. and i like to read out loud i like narration of you know I, I i don't know if i've got the right voice for you know for nature documentaries or things like that yeah but that's what are, i'd like to do too yeah know? i think that's everybody <laughs> for like national geographic uh show or yeah. something like that but i think yeah. you know creative things that require uh, you know, I don't know that I'm not much of an actor. I don't have like great characters, but I can, um, I don't know. As, as I go further into it, I, I realize how bad I am at commercials. I've never been good at selling things ever. Uh, and it, it continues to this day, but yeah, I like, um, well, you're pretty good at selling organic fruit in New York city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a good time with that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I think my ideal jobs would be doing narration and audiobooks. Um, you know, if there were, I, I just, I don't have like a, um, I like the idea of erotica. I'd like to produce erotica and help people make it, 
but I don't have a neurotic voice in my, I have like a make fun of shit or explain things voice. I don't know that I have like a sexy voice. Well, so that's for other people to determine. Right. <laughs> right. So. But so I don't know. My dream job would be, you know, if I could, uh, if I could narrate stories, if I could do what I do, just reading stories to people, that'd be, I'd, be, I'd love that. That'd be my ideal job. So it's been a real privilege to be able to interview you for this. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, it's been a total delight to read your book. Uh, I've connected on it so many levels, so many chapters. I've laughed. I've cried. Uh, you really have a way with words. And it's just uh, an honor to have you as a friend. So yeah. I just want to thank you and uh, kind of wrap up this podcast for today. Yeah. And I hope you've enjoyed this experience as much as I've enjoyed interviewing you. It's, it's a tremendous honor to have anybody read anything that I've written. I mean, a short story alone, I, you know, if I just sent you something and you read it, I'd be grateful. But that you've not only read my book, but you've shared it with so many other people and you've taken the time to, to ask such, I mean, pretty well thought out questions is an honor for me. So, so you can find this Thanks, book. Man. The Moron at the End of This Road, or <laughs> The Moron at the End of This Book, Short Stories from a Life Well Lived uh, by Andrew Couch. You can find it on Amazon. It's available uh, in paperback. It's also available in Kindle and soon to be available as an audiobook. Correct. So, uh, And you can order this if you want to support your local bookstore. They'll... You can order it from a bookstore. Order it from a bookstore yeah. so they start stocking. So, thank you, and it's a wrap. <laughs>